please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 45. The title of my sermon this morning is The Perfect King. And this is the 13th sermon in a series that we've been going through this fall called The Psalms of My Life. And I've been picking a handful of psalms to discuss and share with you. And we'll continue this through the Christmas season all the way up till Christmas Eve. Um, This morning, Psalm 45 is actually a, uh, a wedding song. It's a love song and... We're going to learn about the perfect king from this poem. Let's read God's word together, Psalm 45, verses 1 through 17, and then ask God to bless the preaching of the word. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king, My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp. In the heart of the king's enemies, the peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So far the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Father, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, you have created them both. So open our eyes now and our ears that we may hear. As we learned last Sunday, Lord, dig for us ears that we might hear your word and open our hearts that we might feel and respond. And so, Lord, may our thoughts and my words be acceptable in your sight now, for we ask it in 
In Jesus' name, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now we've just prayed for illumination and traditionally the prayer after the reading of scripture is called the prayer of illumination. And in this prayer we are reminded that without the illuminating power of God we will sit here and hear nothing. And if we hear something it won't be that we're listening but it is as the saying goes goes in one ear and out the other. The seeing eye was a favorite Bible verse of a friend of mine who was a a doctor of the eye. He actually was a a PhD in eye science. And thinking of the seeing eye reminds me that I wear glasses and I have contacts in. You wouldn't know it from a distance, but some of you I see wear glasses. Some of you may wear contacts. And who can forget the scene at the doctor's office, if you've ever been to the eye doctor, where this sort of robot machine lowers down over your nose. Is that comfortable? No, it's not comfortable. And then you hear this, does this look better, click, or does that look better? I have no idea, they look the same to me. But as the doctor goes through the different lenses, the goal is to get closer and closer and closer to something that's nicely in focus so you can read that eye chart. This psalm is here to teach us about the perfect king, but it isn't an image with the first lens that snaps into focus right away. Like the doctor's office, to see the clear image of the perfect king is going to take two or three clicks or two or three lenses. So let's jump in and see what God has to show us. The first click of the eye doctor's lens is this. The success of the perfect king comes from God. You can see this in verses 2 through 8. Verse 1 is an introduction of the psalm. The poet is telling us that his heart is bubbling over it's boiling over like my oatmeal on monday mornings Uh, it's frothing over the side and spilling down onto the stovetop he just can't hold it in and then we jump into the psalm and we we hear this narrative about the perfect king and what's clear in verses two through eight is that his success comes from god how do we see this well we I want to start by saying we don't really know who this king is, but of all the different candidates in my study, I'd, we, can, we can imagine it's possible this might be King Solomon, and so we're going to go with that for the sake of our learning together this morning. And it's a dramatic description, first of all, of Solomon's beauty. Now the poet, I'm presuming, is a male, and so this poet is admiring Solomon's beauty. He's a handsome man. In fact, the text says you are the most handsome of the sons of men or the sons of Adam. But it isn't merely his outward appearance that commends Solomon to our poet. Because then it's followed by an explanation of what's so lovely or handsome about him which is his lips. Now, he's not looking at the, the, the form of his lips. I suppose there's such a thing as ugly lips or beautiful lips, but what makes Solomon's lips so commendable is the fact that Almighty God has poured out grace upon his lips like oil drizzled upon his lips. What commends the, the form, the beauty, the figure, what's so attractive 
about Solomon in this poem is that Almighty God has put grace upon his lips. How do you do that? Well, that means that the things that he says, which flow from his thoughts, which flow from his heart, are altogether lovely. It seems that Solomon is beautiful because a beautiful God has done a beautiful thing. And the poet sees this and his heart is overflowing. It's boiling over with with admiration and awe. I love the story of Solomon when he prays at the beginning of his reign. Do you know this story? He gets an opportunity which I'm never going to get. It's like, Solomon, ask whatever you want. It's almost like the blank check prayer. Solomon says, hmm, wisdom. Of all the things that Solomon could ask for, it turns out the thing that he asked for is wisdom. And while I would probably try to game that system, you know, if I ask for wisdom, then maybe, you know, but Solomon is utterly sincere. He's like, The one thing I need to rule this people, this vast people, is wisdom. And God says, since you've asked for wisdom, I will give you not only wisdom, but honor and riches and fame as well. And so Solomon is known as the richest and wisest man on earth. 3,000 Proverbs he's written, and we have a, a collection of them in the book of Proverbs in the middle of your Bible. So Solomon's beauty is his wisdom, which makes sense. If he's going to be the perfect king, he needs wisdom, and that wisdom is like grace from God poured upon his lips. My first point, I'm telling you, is that his success comes from God, and you can see that in verse 2 in his wisdom. But you also see that his success comes from God because of the way that he mixes power with meekness in advancing in the world. Take a look at verses 3, 4, and 5. Gird on your sword, on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty, there's power. It's interesting that the poet here is commanding Solomon in this vision, in this, in this picture of the king. He's commanding him, but he's also, in a sense, describing the power of Solomon. He's like, look at that man, that powerful man. See his sword, it's girded on his thigh, it's strapped on his thigh, and he's rising up as a mighty warrior goes to battle power. Nothing is more important for a king or a ruler to have power. Otherwise, your enemies aren't going to take you seriously. It's a fact of the matter in a fallen world that the wicked and the vile and the wayward respect strength. Here we see a king of power, a king of strength, and it's altogether appropriate that we see swords and arrows, sharpened arrows that Plunge into the heart of the king's enemy, verse 5. But notice the power as he's riding forth. Maybe he's on a great warrior steed. He's riding for the cause, verse 4, of truth and meekness and righteousness. It's power that's wedded, pun intended, because this is a wedding psalm. His power is married to meekness. Now, I've explained meekness before as a state of of rest of a well-trained soldier, at ease soldier. 
but don't mess with that guy. Or a man or a woman who's trained in martial arts, she doesn't go around wearing the black belt. It's kindly folded up in, in the chest at the end of the bed, but don't judge her by appearances. Meekness is restrained strength. It's strength under cover, so to speak. It's strength that is employed in appropriate and measured ways under the authority of Almighty God. So Solomon's power here, the king's power, is married to meekness. You can't have one without the other. And then the third way that Solomon's kingship mirrors, or uh, rather uh, his success comes from God, is that his kingship mirrors the kingship of Almighty God. We see here in verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I'm saying that verse 6 and 7 tells us that Solomon's throne is based on God's throne. But I need you to notice a problem in this passage or something that's a little confusing. Look carefully. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So a reader of this psalm knows that we're talking about Solomon as we're going along in verse 2 and in verse 3 and in verse 4 and in verse 5. It's Solomon who has a sword girded on his thigh. It's Solomon who's riding out victoriously. It's Solomon whose arrows are sharp. But then our poet says in verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Where did that come from? And to make matters a little more confusing, or to clarify here, in verse 7 it says, Therefore, God, your God, getting back to Solomon. Well, the scholars and the pastors and the theologians debate and struggle with this. What I think is happening is that in the bubbling over of the, of the man's heart, of the poet's heart, as he's bursting forth with prophetic and, and poetic insight into the perfect king, it's as if he's looking at Solomon, and for a moment, in Solomon, he realizes, wait a minute, this is not the perfect king. There's someone else back of Solomon, or in front of Solomon that we are to see and to anticipate. Solomon, perhaps, is just a placeholder. He's, he's a temporary, he's a post-it note marking a spot for the permanent scribe to come in, the, the real king who is yet to come. See, Solomon is David's son, but I think the poet, in prophetic utterance, in the bubbling over, the bursting forth of his heart, sees that God himself is somehow within Solomon, pointing to a greater son of David to come. We'll, we'll see that in just a moment. Well, that's the first lens. The perfect king has success that comes from God. And that last point is that Solomon's kingship, if it is to endure, must have a kingship that mirrors the very kingship of God. Second lens, the second click on the optometrist hardware, what, does this, is this right or this right? Here's the second lens. We shift from describing 
the king himself to the bride who is prepared to marry the king. The anointing in verse 7 yields to the fragrant robes in verse 8, which I take to be wedding garments and his ivory palace in the ancient world. Palaces either contained ivory as treasure or ivory was inlaid in the various parts of the palace as an indication of the vast accumulation of wealth. And out of this, stringed instruments make the king glad. It appears that the wedding party is assembling. And then we move in verse 9 to a chamber, a, a large, a great room perhaps, a large room where daughters of king are amongst the maids and matrons of honor. And we see the king standing in his anointed robes and at his right hand is the queen, the, the consort who's about to be wedded to the king. And we see the gold of Ophir. Ophir is probably somewhere in modern day Saudi Arabia. We're not sure where Solomon got his gold. It's a, it's a place called Ophir. It's a mystery. But he had 3,000 talents of silver from Ophir. And the gold of Ophir is there. It's perhaps decorating the queen in, in terms of uh, uh, jewelry, a crown perhaps. And then we turn in verse 10 where the, the daughter, the woman, the queen is addressed, the queen-to-be. She's given three instructions. Consider, incline your ear, hear. And, and we're, we see then that the perfect king in terms of this woman, this daughter, that she is devoted. That's my second point. She is devoted to leave her past behind. The perfect king has a bride or a wife, a queen, who is completely and utterly devoted to him. And it's something apparently that requires her utmost attention. Now, if, if indeed it's Solomon, and for the sake of this morning's sermon, we're, we're uh, thinking in those terms. She's the, the daughter of Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt. Forgetting her father and her people and moving to Israel and dwelling in Solomon's palace and learning a new language and customs and traditions, meeting strange people, living amongst foreigners, people that are not her own, is not going to be an easy task. And not only that, forgetting her people in her father's house because her father is Pharaoh, revered to be a god, would mean she would need to forget her religion as well and embrace the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Solomon. Hear, O daughter, hear, consider, incline your ear, stretch your ear. This is a serious matter. The marriage which is about to commence is going to require a fundamental shift in your devotions so that your former devotions will no longer apply and for the rest of your life you will be the wife of this man and part of the covenant community, the people of God. I'm reminded of one of my favorite stories. It's actually a Christmas story. The story of the little book of Ruth, four chapters in your Old Testament. 
And in the book of Ruth, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, Ruth becomes a, a widow. Naomi loses both of her sons, and she returns to Israel, to her own people, and urges her two daughters-in-law, former daughters-in-law, to remain behind in their country, the, the land of Moab. But Ruth refuses, and this is what she says to the mother of her dead husband. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, Ruth says, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord, that is Jehovah, the God of Israel, do to me and more so also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now these are words spoken from a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law, but they are used in wedding ceremonies so many times. This is from Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Because of the devotion that they indicate, and we see that devotion being uh, summoned or evoked in verse 10. Now what's beautiful about the bride then in verse 11, the king will desire your beauty. What's beautiful is that we see her devotion in action. So for all of her gold, for all of her garments, for all of her, her beauty, the thing that commends this woman to the king is her devotion to God and to him. Amen. That's what we're looking for in a wife and women. That's what your husband needs. He needs you to be devoted to God and to him in that order. But it's not easy, as we know, it's not easy to maintain those devotions. But the bride of the perfect king is devoted to her husband. She's also devoted to her inner beauty. That's my second observation here about this bride. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, verse 12, the richest of the people. I'm looking, though, at verse 13. All glorious is the princess in her chamber. The King James says, all glorious within, with robes interwoven with gold. So in many colored robes, she is led to the king, verse 14. But she's just as beautiful in her chambers as she is as a bride processing to her wedding. The point of this is, is to draw out the lesson that she is devoted to beauty, not just when she is presented for all to see, but she's devoted to beauty in the chambers of her bedroom, if you will. Now this just doesn't mean that she's made up in the bedroom just like she's made up on her wedding day. But it's showing the kind of character that this queen-to-be has. She's devoted to her inner beauty, not only adorned with the gold of Ophir in public, but her robes are interwoven with gold in private. She is beautiful when no one's watching, and she is beautiful when everyone looks upon her. So my first point is the success of the, per first of the perfect king is God. The second point is the bride of the perfect king is devoted, devoted to God and to her husband, and devoted to her own soul as well. 
the third point, the third lens, we're in the doctor's office and do you like this one or do you like this one? We're looking at the eye chart. The third point, it snaps into focus. The name of the perfect king is eternal. Look at verses 16 and 17. In the place of your father shall be your sons, and you will make them princes in all the earth. Now, the poet here turns to address the king again in these two verses. I, that is the poet, will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. He has an eternal name, this perfect king. Now, I'm getting a little blurry at this point in my doctor's visit because I thought we were talking about Solomon. Now, we had this little interruption in verse 6 where it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. But isn't this about Solomon and his wife? Now, I know we all know Solomon's name 2,000 years, 2,500 years, 2,700 years later. It's a long time. But that's not forever. How can the perfect king, if it's Solomon, how can his name be remembered forever? I'm trying to see the letters on the chart, and it's not so clear. But then the doctor slips another lens in. He says, well, what if the perfect king isn't Solomon? What if the son of David, Solomon, was pointing us to another king? The more we talk about Solomon as the perfect king, the blurrier it's getting for me, doctor. Listen to what happened to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter, 1, chapter 11. King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to, those, to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So, da so Solomon did what is evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father done. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, <clears throat> I will surely tear the kingdom <clears throat> from you and give it to your servant. This perfect king does not fit the bill. Look back at verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. I mean, Solomon was surely handsome, but the most handsome of all the sons of Adam? This makes me think of the handsomest son of Adam who was handsome not in external form. Remember what the prophet Isaiah says of our Lord Jesus. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. The Messiah had no beauty that we should desire him. He was in fact despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Yet, 
In spite of this, Jesus is called the fairest among 10,000 in the scriptures. He was anointed by God as the beloved son. Even though he was meek and lowly, he rides forth on the word of truth. It was said of Jesus, no one ever spoke like this man does. He comes forth conquering and to conquer. First on a foal, the child of a donkey, and then on a mighty stallion with the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As he rides forth, he is called faithful and true, and he rides forth to victory. And whatever he does prospers, and he triumphs by the power of his indestructible life over death. The foundation of his life was the very throne of God. He prayed at the end of his life, Father, everything you told me to do, I have done. I have completed, and he is the only one of God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is why Jesus rises triumphant over the grave. This is how the sword of his spirit and the arrows of his heavenly gospel pierce the hearts of his enemies and defeat us. And he rides over us and we are subdued under him. And he makes us as traitors and enemies by the gospel of his salvation. <clears throat> All nations, the Gentiles and the Jews have fallen under Christ. And in the place of the fathers, Abraham Isaac and Jacob have risen sons, Matthew and John and Peter and James and Thomas and Bartholomew and the twelve. But it isn't just the twelve disciples. By committing to Christ and by hearing and believing the gospel, by joining the bride of Christ as you saw people do this morning, through baptism you learn with Paul to forget what lies behind. Hear, consider, bend your ear, my daughter. Leave your father's house. Leave your former ways. Turn your back on those pagan practices and the debauchery and the life that you once lived. You were called to a new and better life. You are a new creature in Christ. Haven't we spent enough time, Scripture tells us, in those things, in those vanities, in those empty activities. And one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Not just Solomon's wife to her husband, but the bride of Christ in reverence to Christ, submits to Christ. The question would be, will you submit willingly by believing in faith today or unwillingly when he returns? I want to close with the words of a favorite hymn of mine and many of ours, Fairest Lord Jesus, our beautiful Savior. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O thou of God and man the Son, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Fair is the sunshine, fairer still the moonlight and all the twinkling starry host, but Jesus shines brighter. Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. Beautiful Savior, Lord of the nations, Son of God and Son of man. Glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and forevermore be thine. You see, Jesus is the perfect husband. He is the bridegroom. And the job of a minister, according to the Apostle Paul, in writing as he does, is to present you, the flock, as a pure, chaste, virgin bride to her husband. That's the job of preaching. My job in carrying on 
I'm a very, very poor reflection of Paul's majestic learning and his potent preaching power. I'll write no letter that anyone will ever read. But my job as I stand before you today is to speak the words of Christ and to call you away from your other lovers, those who would, who would pursue you, those who are clawing for your attention, and to turn your eyes back to Christ, back to the Lord, to trust in Him. And in our marriages, in our human marriages, there is a beautiful picture in Psalm 45 of what marriage should look like. A man leaves his father and mother in Genesis 2, and a woman leaves her family in Psalm 45. And what do they do? As he leaves and as she leaves, they come together as one flesh. He's totally devoted to, to her. He desires her beauty, and not just because she's beautiful. She is. You are, ladies. But he desires you for your character, for your Christ-likeness. And likewise, she is enamored of him, not just because he's the handsomest of men, not just because your husband is, is good-looking, ladies, but you're enamored because he is a king, and you are a queen, redeemed sons and daughters, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, partnering for the great commission, the great commission to, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth with physical children, biological children, adopted children, and convert children, children that you and your husband share the gospel with the last, least, and the lost as you welcome them into your home and into your lives, your partners in marriage to fulfill the glory of God, which means you have to leave your old life behind. You've got to leave your family behind. Some of us, particularly at Christmas, need to be reminded this is about you and your family, not about your parents or your grandparents, your aunts and your uncles. It's about you as a husband and you as a wife and putting your family squarely on the foundation of Christ. For that is our calling. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gospel at Christmas. We thank you for the gospel in Psalm 45. Perhaps for some of us, an unlikely place to hear the message of salvation, but here it is. It's amazing, the power, the depth, the beauty of your word. And so we, we're leaving, Lord, with our minds and hearts filled with food for thought and reflection, but more importantly with things to do we want to be your people having heard your word we want to serve well in our families those of us who are married and for the unmarried or singles amongst us lord we want to serve christ as a bride serves her husband totally devoted to jesus christ help us in this we pray in jesus name amen to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.